All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the fourth day of December 2018. And I do like to remind you each and every week that I write a newsletter called uh, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and you can subscribe to that letter. Uh, at miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. It is a letter that focuses primarily on the junior mining sector, the exploration companies, and they have gotten battered and hit very, very hard over the last year or so. Uh, So my view is that uh, probably now is not a bad time to look at that sector, although the uh, human inclination is to not look at stocks when they're battered. Uh, I would suggest that you might want to think otherwise. Uh, would also encourage you to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's letter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? He's an excellent track record, has done extremely well, especially in the biotech sector. Uh, he also has uh, done quite well in the mining sector, as well as the energy, uh, with various energy stocks as well. And uh, I also want to mention uh, Michael Oliver, of course. He'll be with me momentarily. Um, Oliver MSA, OliverMSA.com is the place to go to sign up for his wonderful newsletter, which he shares with me, uh, Momentum and Structural Analysis. And uh, as I say, Michael will be with me in just a couple of minutes from now. We do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Sponsors for today's show, RN Resources, Novo Resources, Sandstorm Gold, uh, Triumph Gold, Gold Mining Inc., Uranium Energy, and Klondike Gold Corp. I've titled today's show, Why Interest Rates Are Inevitably Heading Higher. Alistair McLeod, Ivan Bebek, and Michael Oliver are my guests on today's show. Alistair, uh, who is my main guest, he says that uh, he'll be with me. Well, he'll be with me in the second half of, of today. And uh, in the um, November twenty-second article that he wrote for Gold Money, he stated the following, and I quote: "There are growing expectations that the current cycle of rising interest rates will result in a deflationary recession." While a credit crisis is increasingly likely to evolve in the coming months, it is a highly inflationary situation. A combination of higher interest rates and catastrophic falls in purchasing power of fiat currencies will continue to plague welfare-driven states in the wake of a credit crunch. The standard post-crisis solution of monetary and fiscal reflation will not be available in this term according to according to uh, what Alistair wrote and we'll ask him about that certainly uh, want to find out um, what we should be looking forwards to why in the world won't the uh, central banks be able to do what they've done every other time we've had a decline in the uh, in the markets 
just simply print more money. So we'll we'll definitely be asking Alistair why he thinks this time is different. You know, people always say that this time is different, and uh, usually it doesn't turn out to be all that different. But sometimes there's a major turning point uh, in the uh, in the longer term history, and so we'll see what Alistair has to say. Uh, during the second segment of today's show, in just a few minutes from now, after our first commercial break, I'll be talking with uh, one of the most successful young entrepreneurs in the mine exploration business, and he is Ivan Bebek, the executive chairman of RN Resources, which company is starting to drill its world-class gold copper target in Peru. Like most gold exploration companies now, RN's shares are selling at their lowest level in several years. I think I looked at a chart about it's at a three-year low at this point in time, not because of lack of success in their exploration efforts, but because the gold exploration share markets have been hit so hard over the last uh, after over the last year or year and a half or so. The key to success when it comes to investing is to buy quality assets when they are out of favor. Then, when the gold exploration share markets finally turn, I expect Aaron and a host of other companies that I follow in my newsletter. Uh, to reward in patient investors with very sizable gains. Uh, so we want to wait and see when the gold market is going to turn. And, uh, well, we have Michael Oliver with us. He always has uh, his reliable work, provides us with a, a guideline in that respect. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Hey, Jay. Good to be back. It's really good to be back. You know, we always like to ask you about gold and silver. I want to ask you especially about silver today, but before we get to that, given the fact that the equity markets are down now 670 points, that is the Dow, and the uh, I think all the markets are getting hit comparably hard, uh, I want to ask you what's going on there now. Alistair McLeod, um, you know, he, he uh, he's going to talk to us about the equity markets and about the, the economy in general. He thinks interest rates are headed higher long term. And I think he believes that we were, he's been predicting actually that we're going to have a pretty tough equity market here before the end of this year. Seems as though it's turning out to be true possibly. But what are your thoughts right now on equities? And I know last weekend you devoted half of your extensive weekend commentary to the equity markets. So uh, obviously they're, they're very important to you right now. Right. I think that they were the last to make the major turn. Bonds turned in 2016, downside meaning higher rates. Gold bottomed in late 2015, never went back to the low. Uh, a lot of things turned a year or two ago, but the S&P, uh, being the strongest of the developed market stock indices, the U.S. market is compared to Europe or Japan even, uh, is top now. I think it topped in September, period, exclamation point, circle that, it was the top. Now, that's, that, that answers one question, and the next question is, well, what happens now? Well, is it a layered decline that only later becomes nasty? Or does it get nasty uh, shortly after the top? Well, so far it's been sort of nasty, but you can go back to 2000 top in the S&P or the 2007 top. And while you got some sharp drops off of what was the high, uh, it really unfolded in layers. And it wasn't until you know, mid-2018 before it really started to come apart. But it, in, in between that time, the October 2007 high and the mid-2008 sharp drop, that you had a lot of sharp sell-offs, but sharp rallies as well. So it was very confusing with a downward downside bias, but the rallies turn heads, and that's what we just had here the last few days. Mm -hmm. uh, and what's really going on is if, you, if you'll do some examining underneath the covers uh, instead of just looking at the price charts, the NASDAQ 100 had been our leader index, uh, you know, led by uh, Amazon, Google, things like that. 
uh, it collapsed on a relative performance basis to the S&P uh, before the October decline in the index's net prices. And on the rebound since then that we've had, the spread really has not recovered. So what's going on is we're not getting rebuying of the leadership stuff. We're getting buying of things like consumer staples, <laughs> defensive stocks. Yes. Uh, not getting the buying of the old leadership. So the rally is, is being masking that reality. The reality mm-hmm. is that we're not back to normal. So I think the rally is baloney. This particular rally is really a professional would choke, would, would chorkle at it. You had two pieces of news. One, Powell said what you wanted him to say. Yeah. To say, well, we're waving a white flag to some extent. And then two, we had the, the China trade deal postponed. So two great pieces of news, so you buy the news. Well, the guys that bought the news are wondering right now. Um, I suspect strongly that if you get back down into the 2600s, uh, even approach the recent lows, the October low and the low we made uh, last month, uh, they're going to blow it out the bottom. And by blow it out the bottom, I think the next step is you go down and take out the lows of the year, which are around 2550, S&P now, and you go maybe to 2400. I see some reasons to have a fight there. That's the big issue. Are we going to unfold in an arduous manner, like the 2000 top, the 2007 top, which means a lot of arm wrestling before you really get the bear going, or do you precipitously collapse? And I think the decision isn't made here. The decision is going to be made around 2400. And that's the area you've got to watch, because if that doesn't hold, you could get something much sharper and faster. And I don't know the answer to that. I just know that that's the key area. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I think it's, it's important to gold, obviously, and the T-bonds. Uh, the bonds are having a rally now. Rates are dropping. And I think that rally is a counter-trend rally, meaning mm-hmm. ultimately we're not going to get lower rates. But in the short term, I think bonds are being bought by people who are nervous about stocks. And I think gold is getting some of that benefit as well. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very interesting. Certainly, uh, uh, I, I think uh, a lot of people feel that, uh, you know, as Alistair McLeod is going to talk to us about, a lot of people really feel that we're going to have a replay of 2008-2009. If we go into a credit crisis, we'll have uh, cra- you know collapsing rates, and the Fed can start all over again, and the other central banks can start all over again by reflating the economy, and we'll be off to another 10 years of happiness. Well, um, Alistair has a, a fundamental view that sounds very similar to your view uh, as you look at your technical analysis. I do want to ask you, with two minutes left here, about silver James Turk uh, made some comments yesterday. He seems to be turning very, very bullish. Now, James is usually bullish on precious metals, I should say. Long-term, he is. Uh, but he seems to think that we could be getting close to a real turn in silver now. How do you see mm-hmm. it? I, I agree. Uh, silver is up twice as much as gold today. Not that that matters day to day. It happens that way sometimes. Uh, but silver... Um, performed worse than gold in the recent decline, which is typical of silver and also the gold miners. They do better on the upside, ultimately, when you unleash them, than gold. And on the downside, they do worse than gold. So they're like wild dogs on a leash, (laughs) so to speak. (laughs) But on the upside, there are better places to be, in my view, silver and the gold miners as opposed to gold. But gold is the mama, so you've got to watch it for your direction. But then I think right now the the focus should be on buying uh, gold miners and silver, uh, silver did reach a level that it closed, you know, it traded under 14 uh, last month, uh, late in the month, and, and I think early this month, and flipped immediately back up to 1450. It happens 
that are around the highs we've made in the last two days in silver. If you close the month out here, now that's a long way away, but if you close the month out here or higher at, at around today's highs, I think the turn is done. You are turning up. I've got some other things. You don't have to wait for month end in gold and the GDX. Uh, GDX today, the gold mining ETF, got up to 1977, and our published buy number was uh, just above there. If mm-hmm. it closes a week just above today's high. So I'm looking mm-hmm. for a weekly close up there anytime in the next few weeks. And gold is, uh, on a daily basis, has gotten above some numbers today that I think are, are positive. I'd prefer to have a weekly close up in this area. So we'll see. I think we've got like a half day tomorrow and two days on Thursday, Friday. So if gold can be hanging around the highs of the week by the end of the week, I think it's saying something. All right. All right. Well, thank you very much, Michael. He's, uh, maybe we're getting close to a breakout for the yellow metal and the precious metals and those and those shares. We certainly would like to see that, those of us uh, who, uh, who invest in that sector, that's for sure. Uh, well, I see here the, uh, the Dow is down 729 as we go to break. Um, Gold is hanging in there today. It's uh, it's quite a quite a day, uh, but we do have to go to break now. Thanks so much for being with us again, Thank Michael. You. And folks, uh, we will be right back with Ivan Bebek, the executive chairman of RN Resources. So don't go away. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Nobo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold Project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Nobo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Turning hard times into good times is brought to you in part by Sandstorm Gold Royalties. Sandstorm Gold Royalties is a different kind of gold company. They purchase royalties on select mining operations and receive a percentage of the revenue in return. Sandstorm now has a portfolio of over 185 gold royalties around the world. See how gold royalties differ from other gold mining investments at sandstormgold.com. That's sandstormgold.com. Sandstorm Gold Royalties trades on the TSX as SSL and the NYSE as SAND. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm glad to have with me once again Ivan Bebek. He is the executive chairman and director of RN Resources, and uh, Ivan has had a, a very successful track record. He and his team, and they've um, made shareholders a lot of money with a couple of different projects that they worked on in the past, and we've gone over those in previous discussions with Ivan. But suffice it to say, he's working on what he considers to be the best uh, opportunity yet, and that's with RN Resources. Uh, thanks for joining me again, Ivan. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back, Jay. 
It's really good to have you. And I should mention before we get started that you're trading in the U.S. and in Toronto under the symbol AUG. Uh, 90.2 million shares outstanding. I see it around a little under a dollar these days uh, in U.S. money. And, and that, I think, provides a tremendous opportunity. It is one of my favorite stocks. It is one of my uh, one of my larger personal holdings. But, you know, with, with your current share price, I think there's a lot of opportunity. That's why I'm really happy to have you here today to update our listeners on all that you have going on. Now, you have... Uh, two main projects that you're working on, both of which are very exciting, uh, the Committee Bay in, in Nunavut and the Sombrero Project in Peru. I think between the two of them, the one I'm most excited about is the Sombrero Project because it seems like you can work the year round down there pretty much and you're going to be starting a, a very extensive drill program probably in 2019. We'll get to that, but perhaps since you just uh, completed your season of exploration work up at the Committee Bay uh, in the Nunavut, perhaps you could tell us uh, about how that, how that program went this year. What were you expecting to achieve at Committee Bay, and uh, and how did you come out on that uh, with regard to your objectives? Sure, thanks, Jay. Um, well, Committee Bay has been our flagship for four years, and uh, you know we've only had about nine physical months or eight months physically on the ground since we've been there in the last four years due to the seasonality and the, the Great White North, where it kind of sits. What we did in the in those four years is. We've been trying to unlock the science behind targeting rocks that are underneath the dirt that had glaciers move on them from thousands of years ago. And that's certainly not an, an easy undertaking, and that's the only reason why the opportunity for Community Bay exists. And if, if the rocks were all outcropped at the surface, you probably, you know, somebody would have drilled this long before us. So what our technical team did, and it's, you know, a lot of guys who were on a former global exploration team from Newmont, is they've not only um, designed a technique to get through targeting these, you know, covered rocks, but they've also pretty much sampled the entire 300-kilometer-long belt. So we have pretty good signatures from one end to the other. And last year, we drilled something called IVIC. IVIC, we hit a hole 13 or 12 meters of about 5 grams per ton. And we went back this year with a lot of ambition because we saw, you know, the fluids of the rocks and the grade that we're looking for as the start of a major deposit. And we drilled about a one and a half kilometer long section and we went a little bit south and a little bit north. And, you know, we, because we don't get results till we're done at the end of the season, we don't really know which way to keep going with the drill bit. And unfortunately for us, the best hole we drilled was the most furthest hole south of that drill plan. And obviously you're going to go and want to drill more in the southern direction. But what we did drill over the one and a half kilometers was the exact same rocks, a lot of them, as exist in our three bluffs deposit, which is about 1.2 million ounces of eight grams. So we're definitely in the right rocks. We're seeing the fluids go through the rocks. We're also seeing high grade. You know, it's a meter and a half of high grade here and there, but you know, you're in you're in a system, you're in a big system and very strong fluids going through it. The only challenge that we have, and if you look at some of the discoveries such as Amaruk or if you look at Meliodine, the big one down south of us in the Arctic, you know, it, it takes time and these systems are not simple. And because you're dealing with cover and because you know we're, we're putting the first holes ever into the target it's going to take a little time to get to the juice of the target to where the deposit can start forming. And what I'll say is, is a final note on how that went, you know, drilling the best hole the furthest south, you know, visually of what the core looked like from a ge- geological perspective, but also from the grade that we hit in the hole. And although it's not an impressive market grade, it tells us the, the obvious nature of which way we should keep drilling. And, and that's something we're going to get back to next year. 
Now, we went on attack Committee Bay because there's potential for multiple five million ounce discoveries, and, and that potential has not changed from day one. And that's the kind of reward we're looking to give shareholders. But in the meantime, as you mentioned, we, we got on a project named Sombrero. You made a very important observation about the, the year-round access that we get there. We've physically been on the ground at Sombrero more in the last year than we have in four years at Committee Bay. And so when we designed this portfolio of seven projects, we were cognizant of the limited seasonality up north. And so we wanted to balance ourselves out with a southern project or southern projects. And that's what Sombrero fulfilled. Now, what's happened at Sombrero since we got there is it's gotten really big on us. And what I mean by that is, you know, there was an erosional window. There was some five gram gold, 9% copper sampled. You know, there's three gram gold, 4% copper sampled. And there's a lot of rocks indicating that there could be scarring and porphyry mineralization. And, you know, the reason why that was appealing to us, not just because of the grade, but not too far from us, there's a series of mines that have been found in Peru, uh, one of them notably called Las Bombas. Um, it's about 200 kilometers east. And I've heard the critics say, hey, Ivan, that's quite far away. How can you say it's so similar? But uh, Las Bombas is hosted in the Ferrabamba limestone, which interacts with a very specific type of intrusive rock and a bunch of other rocks that are that are present. And all of those rocks that occur at Las Bombas occur at Sombrero. So the analog is pretty substantial to compare the two to each other. And then what we just announced a few days ago, or, or I think about two weeks ago, um, was the, uh, the actual similarities in scale between Las Bombas and Sombrero. And what we're comparing is the actual clusters of high or multiple grades of copper and multiple percent of uh, copper and high-grade gold occurring, plus low-grade copper and low-grade gold occurring on the contact between the intrusive rocks and these Farabamba limestones. So we have about five or six big clusters. And if you look at Las Bombas, that's the same amount of clusters that make up their big mining complex. For the benefit of value to the simple, just a way of understanding Las Bombas, if you calculate the value of the metal there today, it's copper and molybdenum. They come out to a value of about um, 1.7 billion tons of 0.6% copper a gold equivalent, if you were to look at our copper equivalent, which is about $60 billion worth of copper that's sitting there. And so when we're looking at Sombrero, we're targeting a $60 billion potential discovery. And instead of copper and molly making up the 0.6% copper they have, we're looking at copper and gold. And if you're familiar with scarring systems, that's generally where you're going to find the exciting grade that we're all going to like to see when it gets drilled. Now, we've announced our targeting uh, recently, and we came out with a comparison to Las Bombas publicly. Um, there's other mines nearby. Las Chancas was found by Southern Peru Copper. Uh, it's a significant mine. Tintaya, it's one of BHP's most profitable mines they ever had, as well as uh, near other mines in the region. And what we're looking at is a ton of similarities between those mines and the Sombrero project. So the question comes and says, well, how did you guys get this and how is it missed? Well, there's a guy in our team in Peru, his name is Miguel Cardozo, and he's actually worked with Newmont previously. And what he did there was he was tasked to go and determine if they should sell or keep Yanacocha when Yanacocha was a silver deposit. You know, at the time he spent five months in the field on the project, Jay, and he, he saw it differently. He saw the potential for gold. 60 million ounces later, you know, that was his discovery when he was with Newmont. 
discovering it. So substantial, right? And this geologist is a very smart guy. He's the one who acquired Sombrero about a decade or more ago. And he acquired it back in the day in the last bull market. He had a little junior public company and it ran out of money like everyone else did as we crossed 2011 into the bear market. That's where the opportunity came, but Miguel never got a chance to do the work on Sombrero. Our technical team is extremely thorough and it's a lot of gentlemen from Newmont. And what they've done is the thorough, detailed work. And the outcome of that has been spectacular. Now, we have one more layer of information to provide the market. It's a big one. Uh, it's going to be a 3D modeling of our targets. And I'll be honest with you, Jay, in the 20 years I've been in the business, and, and not just as an executive or an entrepreneur looking for gold mines, also as an investor in other companies, such as Aurelian, which was a huge discovery, or uh, Redback, which found Mauritania over in Africa. Um, the Sombrero Project ranks as the number one thing that I could be part of. And, you know, when you start talking about, as an arm weight before you drill your first holes, but a $60 billion target, you don't find this anywhere, Jay. And this is the kind of thing that I dreamt about as a natural resource investor. Now, we're sitting here with seven projects. Committee Bay has, has gotten a lot closer to a major discovery than people think. And that will take time and a drill result to determine that. But um, we'll have 40 pads permitted for sombrero drilling, which will start in May. Uh, that's when we anticipate to have those. And we're about to get access to a bunch more of the ground around where we've been working. There's two communities that control the whole area. We've had the first community agreement done for some time. The second one uh, should be wrapped up by the end of December. And so what we're looking forward to is a plethora of trench results and new targets that we can see copper outcropping on service. We just haven't trenched it yet. And this will fill, you know, the, the, be the main catalyst as we go to tell the world and show the world how big the opportunity is at Sombrero. So a lot of more news to come out of Peru as we get ready to drill it. And, um, you know, that, that leaves us with two major drill programs next year, uh, one being Sombrero and one being uh, Committee Bay. But neither one of these are obligations. These are, you know, things that we have the luxury of determining how aggressive, how much to drill or not drill. And what I'm saying there is that we're not going to put us in a, in a financial penalty box where we have a gun to our head to raise money and, and push ourselves into a dilutionary state to drill things under an option agreement. We actually have the luxury of determining how aggressive we can be and the benefit of Sombrero in Peru is if you start with 10,000 meters, you can finish the year with 40,000 meters of drilling because we'll have the permitted pads to drill that, that many meters. Well, just uh, sort of to summarize Sombrero then, what is the size of the target that you're looking at here, Ivan? Can you give us a sense? And I noticed that also uh, long about June of this year, the Mala Cruz concessions, which are, I believe, in the northern area of the Sombrero project, that, that you picked up. But are you saying that there's some more of these claims that you're going to, that you're looking to pick up that would make it even even larger. So can you give us an idea of what the ultimate size of this target is? To be completely frank about it, we don't know. Um, I would say we're starting off with one and a half to two billion tons as a, as a look, very similar to what you see at Las Bombas, right? And we're hoping to get a grade of what Las Bombas has, copper gold equivalent, or hopefully higher, you know, for the ambition of greed to, to find more value in the metal because ours is copper gold. So when you look at these things and you ask how big could it be, you know, the real estate is there that we could find, you know, a couple of these major centers of, of deposits. There might be, you know, a couple lost bombas in the entire land position because we have about 120,000 hectares. The area we worked in, we've only had in Sombrero North, and this is about 
50,000 hectares. We've only had access to half of it so far. The other half has a bunch of other targets that we've seen. We've walked over, but we haven't done a lot of work on them yet. So, you know, the internally we're seeing one and a half to two billion tons. We're, we're hoping to match the grade of Los Bombas or possibly higher grade. Um, there is a potential outcome that we have 500 million tons, but we may have way higher grade than what they're doing over there. And that would be, you know, the pre- preferred outcome from, from any mining perspective, right? But this is a s- substantial target. One and a half to two billion tons, that's our first look. You'll see high grade in the SCARN, and then you'll see low grade in the porphyry targets, which will make up hopefully a volume that kind of gets to that state. And it's a substantial Peruvian giant mine that gets found, much like the other ones nearby in the area. So it's it's big, Jake. It's, it's about as big as it as I think it can actually be right now, the global exploration business. I don't know anyone going and taking a swing at something like this out there, and I'd, I'd love to see it if they are. Ivan, how soon uh, will the drills begin to turn? And, and I think you're still looking for some permitting yet to do the drilling, and that should come sometime first half of the year, I suppose. Yeah, permitting is well underway. Um, we are we started that process uh, in August, and so we've gone through the environmental and you know, there's a few more stages of the permitting, and what we're targeting publicly is uh, is May of uh, next year, and uh, it could be you know a few weeks sooner, it could be a few weeks later, because you never control that specifically. But I would say with a lot of confidence, I think May is in the middle of the conservatism. It's not too conservative, and it's not too aggressive, so it's it's a good reason to expect that by then. Are these uh, relatively shallow drill holes that you'll be drilling? And and you mentioned 40 pads, so it's 40 different sites uh, where you're going to turn the drills. Yeah, we're getting permitted for 40 pads, and you can obviously drill more than one hole off each pad. Um, you know, I was talking to the technical technical team recently, and I believe that a lot of the holes will be 250 to 300 meters from surface. There are some areas, and we've said this publicly, that we see it going down to four to 600 meters, you know, continuous potential mineralization from surface. and. These are big. These are big targets. And when we announce the 3D, which we expect to have out before the end of the year and show the market the 3D targets that come out of this thing, you know, I think there's going to be some, some very positive surprises on how, how well those things come together. It's going to be a lot more revealing than to what we've put out so far. And even the general non-geological investor will be able to see big shapes which our targets identified through the work we've done so far that we're going to go and test and drill. And, you know, for me, it's exciting because not only is there a volume component, but there's also a grade component. And all this work has, has, you know, caught the attention of a few more companies. And, you know, there's no question that some, some CAs are being signed on the back of the work we've done so far by some of the largest guys in the business that would look for these things. And, you know, we're not in any rush to sell it. We have a great partner with Gold Corp as a major shareholder of our company. Um, I think because it has a large gold component as well as copper component, I think that the interest falls across everyone's palette, both gold and base metal companies. And, you know, I think going into next year with something like this that we can work on 12 months of the year, this is kind of how we've had our previous successes that you've alluded to at the start of this conversation. Both Kate and, and Keegan were projects we could work on 12 months of the year. There was a, a huge amount of outcrop and, you know, the risk of discovery was very similar to what we see at Sombrero, but the magnitude of Sombrero is, is dwarfing those in size. You know, the one thing we promised with Orin, and you've touched on it earlier, is to go and find something that is, you know, legacy-oriented for shareholders. We want to find equivalent of a 
a 10, 20 million ounce gold mine. In Las Bombas comparison, that'd be a 50 million ounce gold mine in comparison of equivalent value of gold to copper, you know, if you'll put them side by side. So that's the kind of thing we've set out to do as a group. And the four years that have been up and down, I mean, there's been great returns that people have been trading it. We've been just buying it as insiders. But, um, you know, at the outcome of this, I think when the discovery comes, whether it be at Sombrero next year, and I think the chances are really high there, or if Committee Bay finally delivers, the weight and the, the, the tough, you know, waiting that we've all been through will be more than worth it with this company. And, you know, our goal is to deliver a 20 to 30 time return from current prices and in the middle of tax loss selling. And I think the opportunity is is quite clear. No doubt about it. Uh, with about 30 seconds left, how's your finances uh, at this time, Ivan? Uh, you're going to have to go back to the well anytime soon? So that's a great question. Um, we obviously have more projects than Committee Bay and Sombrero. Um, you know, the, the WIA Coil project in Peru, something we drilled earlier this year, where we've been discussing selling this project for nearly a year and a half or in the very mature stages of that. And, um, you know, that would be the first priority of potentially self-financing ourselves, as well as our Homestake Ridge project in BC, which, you know, is a very mature deposit of about 1.3 million ounces, seven and a half grams. What we'd like to do, Jay, between now and next May when we go drill is sell these two projects to self-finance ourselves so we don't have to go back to market. Um, we wouldn't have to go back to market if we sold one of these between now and uh, and March of next year. So I'm in Peru as I'm talking to you now and that will um, that will be where I continually come down until you know the transaction moves forward. And uh, at this stage in time, we're, we're not looking for any money from the marketplace. We have plenty of money to start the year and potentially complete one or, or, or if not possibly both asset sales before a drill turns next year. So as a junior, two huge swings, one's mature and a treasury that potentially self-finances from asset sales as we go take a, a swing on some of the biggest things in the business. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Ivan. It's really uh, great to hear from you again. It's a wonderful story, one I'm extremely excited about even more now. Uh, gotten this update from you. Thank you so much, and we'll look to keep up with you going forward in the future. Well, folks, don't go away. We'll be right back with Alistair McLeod to discuss why he believes interest rates are headed higher no matter what the central banks do. Triumph Gold holds a 100% interest in the district-scale Free Gold Mountain Gold Copper Project in Yukon with a government-maintained road accessing their 200-square-kilometer property. The 2018 drill program has resulted in exciting discoveries to date, hitting the richest intersection ever in a porphyry system in Yukon. The company is well-funded and has a large institutional holding, including Gold Corp and Zijin Mining. Triumph trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol TIG and the OTC markets TIGCF. The website is triumphgoldcorp.com. Gold Mining Inc., ticker symbol G-O-L-D on the TSX and G-L-D-L-F on the OTC is the biggest bet for gold investors and legendary investors like Doug Casey, Rick Rule, and Marin Katusa, who put millions of dollars into backing the company, along with institutional investors. The insiders own over 20%. Gold mining has strong cash and no debt. It's one of the top 1% of gold companies that has over 20 million ounces of gold resources. Visit goldmining.com.
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Alistair McLeod, Senior Fellow at the Gold Money Foundation and Head of Research at goldmoney.com. Thanks for joining me again, Alistair. That's my pleasure, Jay. Always good to talk to you. Always good to pick your brain on your latest missive or one of your latest uh, uh, articles that you wrote for Gold Money. And the one I'd like to ask you about and have you share with my listeners is why interest rates are rising long term. You wrote that on November 22nd. Uh, certainly today, interest rates are not rising. The equity market's getting hit very hard here in, uh, in the U.S., uh, and the bond markets are, uh, are the recipient of the money flows uh, going in there and driving rates down. But in the introduction to your November 22nd article, you wrote, and I quote, there are growing expectations that the current cycle of rising interest rates will result in a deflationary recession. While a credit crisis is increasingly likely to evolve in the coming months, it is a highly inflationary situation. So my question to you is why so? After all, we have had uh, not not usually seen, we, we've usually seen decreases in prices uh, during credit crises and, and, in, um, and uh, recessions that follow. So why might it be different this time? Well, it's different this time, Jay, because there's just so much money sloshing around the system. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, following uh, the Lehman crisis, uh, the Fed increased substantially um, uh, bank reserves. I mean, they went from virtually nothing, 10 billion roughly, to uh, what, two and a half trillion? I mean, I can't remember quite what the top was. Um, right. And uh, um, the, the accumulation of savings and checking accounts and cash in the system just went on up and up and up and up. And it accelerated at a far higher rate than the long-term trend rate uh, that we have seen over the last 30 to 40 years. And that has an effect. It is um, monetary inflation, which leads to price inflation. Mm-hmm. And in that article, I argued that price inflation, because of the way the CPI is calculated, is actually grossly underestimated. I, I have no doubt about that. Um, you and I have talked about that in the past. Um, it seems to me that you're you're suggesting, however, that we may be looking at a loss of confidence in currencies, if I'm understanding your article. Um, certainly, the last go-round, the dollar got stronger, at least initially. Prices did decline. Uh, you're saying this time we might start, people might actually start to uh, not believe the government's uh, inflation numbers? Yes. The, the, the point about believing government uh, statistics is that uh, if the trend is in such a um, if the, if, if the trend is in such a way that the statistics are confirming and the statistics are telling you what you want to hear because mm-hmm. you're in the market, then that's absolutely fine. You don't question the government statistics. But when things start going wrong, people start saying, hold on a minute, what actually is the rate of inflation? I mean, if you look at the last five years, the purchasing power of the dollar um, 
five years, you know, the dollar of five years ago, um, or sorry, the dollar of today is only 91 cents of what it was five years ago. That's according to the CPI. Yeah. But if you look at a fixed basket of goods, uh, um, you know, it's lost something like 40% over that period of time. And this is a very substantial difference, the difference between what the government tells us and the reality that we face as individuals, if you like, in our day-to-day lives. And it's when you start questioning those those things, and when you find that um, government bond yields start rising for some reason which nobody can understand, and it starts upsetting the uh, government finances, and suddenly you see that uh, not only have we got trillion-dollar deficits, but you're going to be adding to that uh, a cost of finance, which is going to become very material on top of it. And where does this end? You start asking these questions, it's a completely different environment. So what I was suggesting is that you, you know, if you look at the chart of, say, the 10-year Treasury yield, which I uh, showed in that article, Mm -hmm. you can see that that downtrend has now been broken and it's gone up. Now, admittedly, since that chart came out, there has been a fairly sharp uh, decline in yields. But Mm -hmm. nonetheless, um, that long-term trend does appear to to have been broken. And um, as that uh, trend starts moving in the opposite direction, you will find that suddenly a whole load of things which we took for granted in the past, we can no longer take for granted, like the government CPI figure is a true um, reflection of inflation. And uh, you begin to sort of look at things in a rather different light. And uh, that is called a bear market. The trend Mm -hmm. has changed and your thinking changes with it. Well, I think, uh, Alistair, your point is well taken that when we hear what we like to hear, well, we hear what we want to hear. We don't we don't question it. But it's when we start hearing things that are distasteful to us that we start to dig a little deeper into what is really going on. And I'm thinking uh, a lot of people in middle America that voted for Trump don't have any problem believing what you just said, that uh, inflation is much higher than, uh, than, than what the government says it is. On the other hand, the folks, the recipients of Wall Street wealth uh, are saying, inflation? What inflation? I don't notice any difference in my ability to pay for pay my rent and buy my groceries and do the things you have to do to stay alive. So I think that's very interesting. So uh, all of a sudden now, you know, and the, and the notion on Wall Street, of course, is that the Federal Reserve is in control. Central banks have everything under control. Now, interest rates are starting to rise and they say, oh, well, that's a good thing because it shows the economy so strong. But now maybe it isn't all that strong. We see the housing market starting to get hit hard here in the U.S. and a lot of other things uh, that look maybe not as strong as people think they are. Um, so do you, do you think that rates are rising no matter what the Fed does? Is it out of their control ultimately? Yes, I think it is. It is out of their control. Um, there comes a point where they become very reluctant to raise interest rates because of the cost uh, on uh, government finances, apart from anything else, and uh, the supposed effect on on businesses. I mean, we have a credit cycle, and that is unarguable. Uh, and the credit cycle consists of parts which uh, include, at the end of that cycle, a rise in interest rates to the point where a slump is created in the economy. And uh, that's what we saw back in uh, uh, 2008-9. It's what we saw back in 2001-2. Um, and, uh, you know, going back, it's been a repetitive cycle. So the thing that is beyond doubt is that interest rates will rise 
over the course of this cycle. Now, there is an interruption in this, which we're seeing over tariffs. And I think this is quite an interesting point. Mm -hmm. um, let me take you back to uh, around about September, October 1929. Uh, Wall Street started to crash in those months, uh, and particularly over the, the course of October. Started, started at the tail end of September and then crashed through October. Mm -hmm. On October the 31st, the, the first um, uh, vote on the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act passed uh, the two houses. And the effect of that was that just tying those two events together, people in the market knew that it was going to get passed. They knew in early October that this was going to be a fundamental change, if you like, for the market. And so they sold it heavily. We're now in a situation where we have, we have run up to uh, a, a, an increase in tariffs on China, which until this last weekend was due to happen on January the 1st. Mm -hmm. We can see that President Trump believes in one thing and one thing only, and that is tariffs. It's a, it's a war he reckons he can win. In mm -hmm. fact, he even tweeted today, if I can just find it, it's worth mm -hmm. me repeating this. I am a tariff man. When people or countries come in to raid the great wealth of our nation, I want them to pay for the privilege of doing so. <laughs> it will always be the best way to max out our economic power. We are right now talking in billions of dollars in tariffs. Make America rich again. And that's, the, that's signed by the real Donald Trump. And that was mm -hmm. tweeted at 10 o'clock EST uh, today. So wow. that basically is um, Donald Trump repeating what Senator Smoot and uh, um, uh, Representative Hawley <laughs> was doing 90 years ago. And guess what? We have got a, a, a stock markets which are having, I think at the very least, a rather nasty wobble mm -hmm. in the middle of all this tariff talk. Now, probably going a bit too far to tie what happened in October 1929 with what's, what's going on in the stock market today. But I do notice the similarities. Mm -hmm. Well, certainly as I look at the, uh, at the market right now, we're down 764. That's about a 3% decline. It's uh, certainly not as cataclysmic as anything we saw uh, in 19... Uh, I didn't see it. I wasn't quite here then yet. Uh, but what we saw in 1987, of course, and, uh, and more recently in 2008, we've seen some massive declines. But uh, it, it does seem to be wobbling a bit. And certainly, uh, as Michael Oliver said earlier, he's convinced that we've seen the tops in the equity markets and uh, probably in for some nasty surprises to the downside. Uh, time will tell. Alistair, um, David Stockman has been on this show, has emphasized the fact that we're running these huge deficits at a time when we're when the economy is at a, at the top of the cycle. I mean, it's supposed to be the deficit under Keynesian ideas were to run the deficits at the bottom to try to stimulate the economy. But here we are at the top, uh, running two hundred. Uh, what we're running a hundred huge deficits. I think we're something like twenty two billion in total debt now in the United States. So one percent increase will in will. A uh, one percent increase in rates will, you know, raise twenty-two billion. What if I got my two hundred and twenty billion? Two hundred and twenty billion with our twenty-two yes. trillion, twenty-two <laughs> trillion in debt. Yes. Uh, one percent is twenty uh, two hundred twenty billion yep. additional. So, uh, what you're if I, I mean, reading your article, you're suggesting that this time 
the central banks will not be able to do what they did before. They'll not be able to print huge amounts of money and restart the uh, the engines again. Um, that's right. I, the, the problem this time, Jay, is that they've already printed the money like last time, mm-hmm. and that hasn't actually sort of cleared through the system. Uh, there is too much money already in the system. So if the Fed tries uh, that remedy again, what it'll, all it will happen is that it must crash the dollar. And I can't see that anything else can possibly happen. So that is a major change between what's likely to happen in the coming months and what happened back in uh, at the time of the Lehman crisis, which was um, sort of August, September 2008. Mm-hmm. A very important difference. Now, in terms of, um, I, I guess I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about how did we get ourselves in this mess um, and, and you talk about um, Keynesian economics, uh, his, uh, his disbelief in Say's law. Talk to us a little bit about Say's law and what that meant and how Keynes sort of, over, sort of um, pushed aside Keynes' law and, and has everybody buying into the notion that government can create capital, uh, state-sponsored capitalism, if you will, or state-sponsored capital central banks create money out of nothing as opposed to the old-fashioned way under uh, during the days when Say's Law was revered, in which savings was the, uh, was the starting point or was the origin of capital. Talk to us about why that has been so damaging and uh, explain how that connects with where we are today. Yes, certainly. Say's Law is, if you like, the central tenet of um, classical economics. Uh, Basically, what Say's Law describes is why it is that we go to work to produce things that we specialize in, the things that we are skillful at, in order to buy the things that we're not skillful at Uh producing. Uh, And we do that basically by selling our goods for money. And that money is, if you like, the temporary storage of our labor Mm -hmm. while we spend it. And we spend that in two ways. We spend it immediately on the things we want. And we reserve some of it uh, for the future because uh, life is uncertain and we might fall ill or something like that. And we need a cushion of money uh, against that possibility. But we don't just sit on it. We recycle that money to someone who needs that money in order to uh, uh, invest in the business, to develop new products, um, and so on and so forth. And uh, we get the fact that we do without the use of that money, we get paid a return uh, for that. And that is a rate which is set at the market, in the market. Both the, the, the proportion of the money uh, that is taken, you know, that is saved, and also the rate at which is paid is actually set in the market and it is set by the demand of business for that capital. Now, what uh, uh, Keynes did was he defined, he redefined that in such a way that was really gobbledygook. And this is in his uh, uh, general theory. Um, and he had to do that because uh, in order to recommend uh, a, a system whereby uh, government can intervene in the free markets to try and make it better, uh, he had to get the idea over that free markets were not perfect in any way and were subject to failure and that Say's law uh, could be ignored or should be ignored. And so that was why he introduced the whole idea of Say's law. If you go on in his general theory and into the conclusions towards the end of that book, he expresses uh, a wish. 
And the wish is that uh, sabers uh, are not required to finance industry. He described it as the euthanasia. He looked forward to the euthanasia of the saber, oh. or the, raunt the rontiers, he rather disparagingly mm -hmm. calls the saber, because he sees, he sees the saber as um, uh, someone who is idle, rich, doing nothing, uh, not getting hands dirty, not working, um, and just living on the back of his capital. And that, to him, was a sort of fundamentally um, uh, morally wrong in the same way that the church over years has looked at usury as being something wrong and has always had this debate about interest rates and, you know, mm -hmm. the morality of it and all the rest of it. Anyway, right. he came down very strongly against it. And he uh, uh, um, uh, anticipated uh, in his wishes, if you like, uh, in the conclusion that the capital for entrepreneurs would be provided by the state. And furthermore, the, um, uh, the entrepreneurs uh, uh, taking capital from the state would use it effectively. Now, this is, this, that is what he, 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 uh, he, that was where he was going in terms mm -hmm. of his general direction. And it is so obviously wrong. But whenever you talk to a Keynesian economist, they actually adore the man. They believe oh, in it. It's yes. quite horrific. Yes. Anyway, that's and the, of course, well, Alistair, well, Alistair, of course, you mentioned that money goes from savings. People put it uh, as a storage of their of their savings of the of the uh, so that they can consume in the future or use it in the future for returns to invest. But I guess state capitalism, state sponsored capitalism, doesn't really allow the price discovery of savings, right? It distorts the price discovery of capital. And David Stockman has talked on this show already, but how can you have capitalism if you don't allow capital to be priced? Well, that's absolutely right. Um, the state cannot determine uh, the price of anything um, because that is not their function. The function of the state is to, um, uh, if you like, sort of protect us to make the laws and so on and it then wanders off into uh, uh, the territory of destroying wealth um, or the way they would put it redistributing uh, um, money from the rich to the poor socializing socializing wealth if you like but it is actually destroying wealth they have absolutely no means of being able to judge any prices at all and even when they try and destroy wealth by transferring it to uh, uh, people who who need need uh, welfare. Um, the intention isn't, isn't necessarily to destroy wealth, but they end up doing it anyway. And we saw the logical effect of this when the, um, when the Iron Curtain finally fell in, in uh, the late 1980s, uh, and we saw just how impoverished everybody was in um, that, um, if you like, sort of the nirvana of socialism, the um, uh, Soviet Union. Right, exactly. Well, it's just about a minute left, Alistair. I think what you're telling us is that we're heading for some very serious inflationary uh, periods of time ahead of us, probably when it's going to be more and more difficult for people to be able to afford the basic needs of life, the middle class at least, to be able to do that. Uh, what should individuals be doing? And then I should mention that in your article, you said there is an escape route for government, in which I think you're hinting that uh, those who suffered under socialism before, namely China and Russia, have sort of figured it out. And they're actually going to a solid a sound base of money to a to an extent from what we can see into gold uh, what advice do you have with a minute left for our uh, for, for our listeners 
Well, uh, I would certainly follow the direction of the Russians and the Chinese with respect to gold. Gold isn't an investment. It is actually money, but it's money that retains its purchasing power. So if you have your savings or a portion of your savings in physical gold, you have money to be able to spend at a future date. And uh, if in dollar terms, uh, the price of a barrel of oil goes to a million dollars, your gold will still buy the same amount of oil as it does today. Okay. All right. Well, that's uh, very well put. And I thought it was very interesting. Your article did go into some details with regard to the activities of China and Russia. And I think that's a a subject that we'll want to talk to more about sometime in the near future. Alistair, I thank you very much for being with us and um, look forward to doing it again sometime in the near future. That was very much my pleasure, Jay. Thank you. Thank you. Well, folks, that is all the time we have for this week. Next week, I expect to be talking to David McElvaney. I want to hear what he has to say and what his views are as we head into the new year. Also, the price of uranium is starting to uh, rise a bit now after a long, long bear market. And Amir Adnani of Uranium Energy Corp. will be with me. Also, with a little luck, we'll have Michael Oliver back again. So until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon Territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike Gold Rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corp. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. Often referred to as one of the best teams in junior gold exploration, having discovered a 5 million ounce gold mine and sold a second company amidst discovery, the management behind Orin Resources now has a world-class exploration portfolio within Canada and Peru. Projects that give the company one of the largest direct pipelines for major discoveries globally, with one of the deepest technical teams to explore them. Entering into its third year of aggressive pursuit, Orin is expecting results from two of their major projects throughout the rest of this year. For the latest, head to orinresources.com and subscribe.